Well, please be watching your uh, email. There's a special one coming about 10 to the city voting, which is a very important part of our ministry to the city. So you'll want to take part in that. And also just thank you for a wonderful celebration last week. Uh, made all the sweeter by Pastor Phil saying that he's coming. That just uh, was a beautiful, beautiful coming together. One of the most famous Advent prophecies came from the pen of a secretary of state serving a Hebrew king in a time of national anxiety and geopolitical turmoil. Isaiah served in the court of King Ahaz in the 8th century before Christ. And under his reign, Jerusalem is under attack from a couple of nations to the north. And Ahaz panics, and he's a weak and faithless king, and rather than turning to God, he turns to politics, and he seeks a deadly alliance with the Assyrians, who were kind of the Nazis of the ancient Near East. And God sends Isaiah to tell the king not to do that, to not trust in politics to save him. But Ahaz makes the alliance anyway. And then in chapter 7 and 8, Isaiah offers grim prophecies that we should probably read and listen to as a people in America today, a people of God, about what inevitably happens when we make politics our religion. And chapter 8 concludes, as a result of all of this, they will look to the earth, the resources of the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, one of the things biblical prophets do is critique the status quo and provide a hopeful vision for the future. And Isaiah does that all through this book. And so we're left at the end of chapter 8 in a very historical, depressing situation. And then Isaiah brings a prophecy of hope. And we just read it tonight. It's a hope prophecy about what God does for people who are in distress or anguish or gloom. And we're going to just sit with it a little bit tonight. And before we do, maybe you could check in yourself. Just how's your hope? Is there a part of your life maybe that feels a little, little dark or distressed or Maybe some of you are even in anguish tonight. My prayer for you is that as we go through Advent, that your hope would be renewed beginning tonight. How does God bring hope to people who feel like they are in darkness or in distress? Well, Verses 6 and 7 provide the answer, and this is essential Advent reading, and if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard it most of your life. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called 
These names are well worth meditating on. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Where does hope come from? God will give the world his son. The son will establish a kingdom. The responsibility for leading that kingdom will rest on his shoulders alone. The son's character uniquely qualifies him to lead this kingdom. He's a wonderful counselor. He guides the kingdom with wisdom. He's a mighty God. The son himself is God. And the kingdom he leads is the kingdom of God. He's an everlasting father. Do you see already the mystery of the Trinity starting to unfold here? The son cares for the members of his kingdom as an expression of the father's care for the world, and this care lasts forever. And he is the prince of peace. He administers shalom. And this kingdom, this kingdom of God promised to David will be marked by justice and continue to increase and God himself will accomplish this. Jesus quotes this prophecy in Matthew 4 when he starts his ministry to say, I'm now 732 years later fulfilling this prophecy. And verses 2 to 5 describe what happens when Jesus' kingdom comes. In other words, it tells us how God brings hope. And Isaiah is so confident that this will happen that he writes from the future and looks back on the kingdom coming as if it's already happened. Let's just take a minute and think about it. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Darkness isn't always bad in the Bible. One verse says darkness is a treasure. God meets us in the darkness. But when Isaiah uses the word here, he's talking about a life lived without hope, a life of despair, a life without Purpose, And when the sun comes, he brings a life like that light. John appears to be thinking of this verse in the opening verses of his gospel. The light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. Isaiah's readers would have been thinking about a dark desert night covered with a bank of clouds, hopelessly lost. And then you see a light. You don't really know what the light is, but you know where light is, there's life and hope, and you move towards the light. And that is what the sun does. 
he comes to us in the dark places of our life and he says, just move towards that. Over the break, we actually had no kids in for the first time in 38 years. Some of you parents are like, oh, that happens? Yeah, it happens, it happens. And so we watched a little more TV than normal. And so we, because uh, when the kids are in, we never can agree on the same show. Um, so Sandy and I like The Crown. And there's an episode in The Crown called Annus Horribilis which is Latin for horrible year. And the queen, who's rarely vulnerable, shocks the world when she admits that in 1992 it was the Annus Horribilis. You know, for one thing, it's just hard to imagine a political official quoting Latin. But for another thing, everyone was blown away that she would say that and seek the prayers and comfort of her people. Has this been an Annus Horribilis for you and your family? Just a tough year? Maybe you're walking through the desert of your own darkness tonight. Maybe there was one conversation over Thanksgiving that's just left you unsettled. Or maybe the approach of winter leaves you feeling anxious and depressed. Maybe a constant scrolling of bad news on your iPhone saps your hope. Or the old cruel friend of addiction paid a visit again over the holidays. Well, the gift of Jesus doesn't wipe away all darkness. But his coming into the world brings a point of light to walk towards even in the darkest night. If you're in some darkness tonight, will you choose to walk towards the light? It might be as simple as just letting a close friend know how you're doing. It might mean saying, you know, I kind of like the space Matt's created for us tonight. I forgot what Advent's all about kind of didn't even want to come tonight because I've kind of been in a funk you might be thinking but something's present here there's light here I think I think I'm going to make Advent a spiritual retreat and I'm going to walk towards the light it might be letting some darkness go some bitterness regret or disappointment or shame just letting it go moving towards the things that are the light of grace and forgiveness. The light is coming to the world, but you have to walk towards it. And one of the oddest things about human psychology, and dare I even use the word depravity, I think there's a sense in which we get all twisted up and There's something in us that so often walks away from the light. Don't do that. Walk towards it. 
You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They're glad when they divide the spoil. When the son comes, when his kingdom comes, and it came with him, he increases joy for everyone who shares in its blessing. He says it's the joy that a farmer knows at harvest time. A warrior knows it when they're victorious. His kingdom is marked by joy. Joy to the world will sing eventually this season. Now it's interesting. If you study joy through the Bible, there's a lot of verses on it, but in the Old Testament, joy many times is linked to prosperity. I'm joyful because I had a great harvest, because the king is faithful, because we won the war. But the deeper you go into the New Testament, the more you find joy linked not to prosperity or events, but God himself. 1 Peter 1.8, though you don't see him, you believe in him. You rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And I think you can see that same arc in the life of a believer as they grow, that their joy becomes less connected to their circumstances and more connected to their relationship with God. I've been reading a book about healing trauma. And uh, the author argues that when a person experiences trauma, they develop a narrative around the traumatic event. And often it's a a narrative that leaves them kind of feeling dark and depressed. Uh, I will always be alone. I can only be safe if I become small. That kind of person will always hurt me. I must perform perfectly in order to be loved and not abandoned. And of course, we all have these narratives and they're unconscious and they steal our joy. And the author says that one of the things that brings healing is that when you identify these narratives that lead to despair and you reframe them and connect them with narratives that lead to meaning and purpose and joy. And I don't know if the, the author was a Christian, but I was reading it this week and I thought that's what we're doing in Advent. We're trying to say that the realest story, the truest narrative, the realest thing in the world tonight is not necessarily who won the football game or the Senate race in Georgia or the war in Ukraine. The realest story, the realest narrative is the one that we're sharing in tonight. Our belief that the government of the world is not on my shoulders, but on his. That I have a wonderful counselor who guides me. That there is a mighty God at work in and through all of life. That I'm loved by a father for eternity. And that there is a loving personality at the heart of the universe that is always oriented towards peace. One of the reasons I just just hope this Advent season can be a time of revisiting what's really real and reframing the narratives that leave us hopeless and depressed. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. (laughs) We've talked about this, how the, the Bible is so good at kind of like linking everything together. And so they drop these little little hypertexts that if you click on them, they'll take you somewhere else. So what's the day of Midian? What's all that about? Well, it looks back to the story of Gideon's army found in Judges 6 to 7. And Midian was uh, an enemy nation that oppressed Israel. And God tells Gideon to go fight the Midianites. And Gideon is no war hero. He whines, my clan is the weakest and I'm the least in my father's house. Don't send me to do this. God says, it's okay, I'll be with you. Gideon says, well, give me a sign. God gives him a sign. Gideon says, give me another sign. God gives him another sign. Gideon goes and gathers 32,000 men. God says, that's way too many. Send 22,000 home. Gideon does. God says, you know, I think that's too many. Have them all drink water from the river and only take the warriors that drink like a puppy. I love the Bible. You just can't make these kind of stories up. And so only 300 men get down and slurp. And God says, all right, they're the ones. Everybody else goes home. And then God defeats the Midianites with 300 guys that drink like a dog. (laughs) The day of Midian is the day when God chose the weakest possible leader and gave him the smallest possible army and then gave him a victory to show who's really in charge. (laughs) That's our kingdom. That's the kingdom Jesus brought. That's the kingdom we celebrate tonight. Everything in this world is a different kind of kingdom about dominance, power, and control. That's not the kingdom that we're invited into. Paul puts it like this, 2 Corinthians 12. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My powers made perfect in your weakness. Jesus Describing the kingdom quotes another verse in Isaiah. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus turns to Isaiah again to kind of paint the picture of this up upside down kingdom Isaiah 61 the spirit of the Lord is on me the Lord's anointed me to bring good news to the poor to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives the opening of the prison to those who are bound this is the kingdom of God it's for wicks that are almost snuffed out and bruised reeds and guys who slurp their water and broken people, people like us. And somehow God delights in using weakness to bless the world. And there's one last little verse. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult 
and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. When the sun's kingdom comes in fullness, wars will cease. Military hardware will be burned. The politics of Jesus are the politics of peace. We seem so far from that vision today, but the vision reveals the heart of our king. He is the prince of peace. His government prioritizes shalom. And when you join this movement, you join a community of peacemakers and people who are committed to peacemaking. And all of this should give us hope. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now you'd meet us at the table and that you, by your spirit, would make real the really real things we talked about tonight and impress them on our hearts and give us hope. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, lifted it to the Father, blessed it.